This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. I've sort of split bondage of the will into three sections in my mind. And the first thing I want us to talk about is just sort of how um, Luther discusses foreknowledge, how God's foreknowledge works itself out on human lives. Then we will move to the question of God as he is hidden and revealed. Um, and then finally, I want to spend a few minutes talking about... Um, how, for Luther, the bondage of the will is ultimately a pastoral doctrine. It's ultimately something that should give comfort. Um, and it's ultimately something that should reveal to us that our standing before God should be one of reverence and deference because we await what he calls the light of glory to come to us and reveal that all of God's actions are just and right. Even though we can't know the hidden will for us, we trust that God stands over us um, as a potter does the clay and that his judgments are just and right and true even when they seem evil. I want to just skip around and read some excerpts. Um, we can discuss this as we go just to try to form a logic for how Luther thinks um, God's foreknowledge works and what it means for our will. So I'm going to start on page 80. You can either... You sort of skip along with me or um, just listen. So Luther says, It is fundamentally necessary and wholesome for Christians to know that God foreknows nothing contingently, but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, and infallible will. This bombshell knocks free will flat and utterly shatters it, so that those who want to assert it must either deny my bombshell <laughs> or pretend not to notice it, or find some other way of dodging it. <laughs> um, and then sort of further down he says, if God wills what he foreknows, his will is eternal and changeless because his nature is so, from which it follows by resistless logic that all we do, however it may appear to us to be done mutably and contingently, is in reality done necessarily and immutably in respect of God's will. Um, I mean, that... That is the starting point for all of this. Uh, God knows everything. Insofar as he knows everything, everything has been willed by God, and nothing will happen contrary to God's will. Otherwise, that would change the nature of God, and God would no longer be God. Um, and I, I want to point that out particularly to say that when Luther talks about our bondage, it's not that the first step is to necessarily talk about sin. But it's the first step is God's necessitating foreknowledge that we are all um, sort of trapped in our wills, which God moves along as God works all things in all. And the fact of sin is important there. But the first thing we start with is um, the nature of God as the one who knows all things. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about a larger philosophical question. Uh, Coming from Calvin, there's some wince-worthy parts of the Institutes. Um, Calvin will talk about like children suffering, and Calvin mm -hmm. says, you know, what is the 
God is sovereign. Uh, it seems like Luther, though his very high view of the bondage of the will, mm -hmm. um, has more of a, a multifaceted view of causation, maybe. And here's what I mean. Uh, it, you know, um, it was the nominalist Sir Duns Scotus that, that introduces to us kind of a univocal view of causation: either God causes or I cause, right. or or you have to take one or the other. It's where in, uh, you know, in my seminary, people could say ridiculous things like, "Well, I'm ninety percent Calvinist, ten percent Arminian." What? It um, doesn't work like that. No, but. You know, if it's true, there, there's an analogical view of causation too, right? Mm -hmm. In him I live and move and have my being. So my will is completely bound, but I have a will. Mm -hmm. It's a real will. I mean, Luther has an imagination for it. He just says it's bound to sin. Yeah. Uh, that your agency is not determined, so to speak, in a mechanistic kind of way, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's just bound. It's bound. Yeah. Um, and so Luther feels a little more nuanced, that, that he's not quite like in the nominalist school in the view of causation. Is, am I reading that right? I, I'm just... I, I think you're, you're getting at something, and um, I think we can view that question from two angles. The first is sort of eternally from this question of foreknowledge, and the second is the contingent um, side of our human living. Um, for Luther, it says, when you talk about um, free will, we can't attribute it all to our, our lives with God. But when we're talking about daily life, yeah, sure, let's talk about people having you know, a modicum of free will where which they can choose to act righteous in a civil sense. Um, you can choose to do the right thing in daily life to a certain extent. Uh, and, there, and that's where he would just say, talk of foreknowledge and predestination does nobody good when we're just talking about what shirt am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Am I going to cause the suffering of children? Just leave that out of the conversation then. Um, but I think the, the bigger point there is the distinction he makes between necessity and compulsion. Um, so he talks a lot about that with Judas. Um, was it necessarily the case that Judas was going to be a traitor, um, deny Jesus Christ? and kill himself. Yes. Yes, that is necessarily the case. Um, was his will compelled to do that? Right. That's the, yeah, I remember that section. Yeah, it, Luther would say, no, his will was not compelled because his will was being moved in precisely the way it wanted to be moved. Yeah, he does that with Pharaoh too. Mm -hmm. It feels like it feels more analogous. Yeah. Did God cause it? Yes. Did Judas cause it? Yes. Because mm -hmm. Judas' will was bound to this direction. Yeah. Um, and another side from that too is when um, Luther talks about how the 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 person can cooperate with God um, after regeneration by the Spirit. He says, "Does this mean that the that the 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 will is free in any way? Well, absolutely not. It just means that this Holy Spirit has given you a new will that looks in a new way. And insofar as God is working all things in all in you, you are moving in this new way that is in, accord in accordance with the will that you possess. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I've done a lot more study of Calvin than Luther. Mm. Uh, and I know Calvin's after Luther. But I read this and I put my little anachronistic comments like, this sounds very Calvinist. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and I guess the question is, was there a common body of teaching that was teaching this kind of really strong view of God's foreknowledge and, and stuff like this that both Calvin and Luther were being exposed to? Mm -hmm. Did Calvin actually read Bondage of the Will and was it impactful for his formation of the Institutes? Like, or where is where is the Q document? You know, yeah. <laughs> kind of idea. Like, because they're they're sort of talking about things, and I know other people have talked about foreknowledge in the past. So, but they're arriving at and making very similar statements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I don't know. I'm just curious about the background of their learning and where they're getting this from. I don't know whether Calvin read Bondage of the Will. Um, on one hand, it wouldn't surprise me, but I don't have any, I wouldn't have any way of pointing to an answer towards that. Um, I think you're right, though, that the, these questions of God's will and his knowledge um, and what we think about that logically, that was just, that was always the question. Um, I think, you know, of someone like Boethius and his, on the consolations of philosophy yeah. as being particularly relevant for, um, someone like Luther. Um, I think Oswald Bayer makes the case that Luther is essentially Boethian in his view of God, time, and knowledge, which is just that God has all things before him eternally at all times, such that he knows all things, and that's sort of is how he gets around the problem um, of foreknowledge. So I, I don't think there is, has to be any sort of special thing um, that would have caused this, but it's, it's, it's a question that was already there, that when we start to work out again from justification by faith, eventually he says, this is the end point of that, that doctrine. Yeah, Calvinists can take the question of causation to a ghetto. To a ghetto? Yeah, there's this univocal view of causation, so Calvinism leads to hyper-Calvinism. Mm -hmm. So, this would help me. Um, how, would a Calvin, how would Calvin or Calvinist Describe the difference between necessity and compulsion. Well, I think a good Calvinist would do what Luther's doing, is what I'm trying to say. Okay. And I think that's a really good distinction to have in our brains for when, if you're trying to teach something like this to a person, um, to remind them that the thing that God is working in them is precisely what you want. It's precisely where your will is directed. Um, the harder thing to talk to people about is saying, Yes, God is even working all things and all in Satan. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's sort of where that doctrine gets more difficult. Um, but it reminds you that for Luther, this doctrine of God's foreknowledge and necessity of all things didn't, it didn't remove a person's culpability for their sin. It didn't remove um, responsibility for causing suffering and all these things because it's always... Um, an evil that's attributed to your will in which and through which God is working. I think it must be fair because he just thinks this way. He says the will never acts against its will. Mm. Which is a nice little tidy way of putting all the necessity compulsion thing in there. So yeah. The will always does what it wants to do. It never acts against its will, so to speak. Yeah, to use that, you know, to use the analogy of the will as the, the mule 
who's written by either God or the devil. We are perfectly happy with our writers. Uh, we as the mule are always happy to go exactly where that thing is leading us because um, we are set on the path where we're going. Um, there's never any hesitancy or trying to buck off the writer on our own, our own power. Um, in fact, I, I'll just read that, that tiny section about um, so that? this is on the bottom of page 103 or I'll, I'm going to read a few sentences throughout this section but then we'll get to the bottom of page 103 so it says Luther says when God is not present to work in us all is evil and of necessity now this is the question is all of necessity that we act in such a way that contributes nothing towards our salvation he says, I said of necessity, not of compulsion. A man without the Spirit of God does not do evil against his will under pressure, as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it, like a thief or footpad being dragged off against his will to punishment. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. Um, what paragraph were you in? That was the bottom paragraph in 102. Oh, 102. Yeah. Um, the flip side of it in, in the middle of 103 is, he says, when God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. Once more it desires and acts, not of compulsion, but of its own desire and spontaneous inclination. But there at the bottom he says, here too there is no freedom. No free, to turn, no free will to turn elsewhere or to desire anything else as long as the spirit and grace of God remain in a man. Um, in other words, he's not going to attribute free will even to the regenerate person because it's always God working in you. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is, yeah. <clears throat> um, the, 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 the statement about the writers, though, comes at the bottom of 103. So man's will is like a beast standing between two riders. If God rides, it, it wills and goes where God wills. As the psalm says, I am become a beast, as a beast before thee, and I am ever with thee. If Satan rides, it wills and goes where Satan wills. Nor may it choose to which rider it will run or which it will seek, but the riders themselves fight to decide who shall have and hold it. Tell me again what page that's on. Uh, 104, that's at the top of 104. And that's, to, to me, um, fascinating because you have to remember that this is set in the discussion of the hiddenness of God. So you're being ridden by either God or the devil, but God is always the one working all of the things, um, such that you know, a lot of Lutheran theologians would say that for Luther, the devil is really a mask of the hidden God. It's not... Um, you know, some sort of agent independent of God working contrary to, to um, God's working, but it's God working within an evil agent. Um. So this is a development of Luther's theology where earlier in his life he kind of had this idea that the devil and God were fighting against each other. Mm-hmm. Now he's seeing that the devil is more of simply a pawn in the hands of of God, is that, is that accurate? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just a reminder that all, like, if God truly is omnipotent, he truly does cause all things to happen, then there is nothing that stands outside of that causation. And yet the devil is not compelled to do something. He is moved, you know, right along the path that the devil wants to go. But he is just not an agent outside of God's working all in all. So the devil is God's mule. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess by extension. Yeah. Um, like a devil's yeah, not the compelled, devil's... but he can cho- choose to be either ridden by, mm-hmm. well, I don't know, I guess himself or God. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's probably we're probably creeping a little bit into to the, the mystery. Of, yeah, yeah, right. But Reductio the devil, devil and evil. Yeah. A tool of God. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if that's Luther or Bayer. You know, my, my book's mixed up now, but I guess it's Bayer. He says exactly that. And Luther is interesting here because there's always, there are these two canyons that you can fall off uh, into. One is to attribute the causation of evil to God. Um, for Luther, God still does not cause the evil. He does not create the evil. He does not give you some sort of fresh hell by himself that he's directing. That's one side where you can go wrong. And Luther will you know, really look over into that canyon, um, but he's not going to fall off into it. The other side is to say, God is omnipotent, but there is something that exists outside of his causation. Um, that's scarier. That, 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 that's a very scary thing. And, and, you know, I think the end to that, of course, is something like open theism. Yep. Um, yep. Which is... Word to maintain pastorally. Yeah. That, God is omnipotent, but what, and what was the next phrase you said? But you can fall... But there is something outside, just a little thing outside his omnipotence. Mm-hmm. The devil kind of runs free, evil, so that God doesn't have to, we don't have to account for how God's sovereignty works in evil, because that sounds too incriminating. You're, you're saying this is a possible, this isn't what you believe, you're just no. saying it. I'm saying these are two views that you could have which would lead you astray. Oh, gotcha, okay. And the, the, the middle path Luther is trying to walk is saying, God does not create evil, but there's nothing that stands outside of his causation. Therefore, when we talk about God working all things in all, you have to include evil in that. You have to include the working and agency of the devil in that. Um, that seems contrary to a very patristic idea of evil, though, mm. which is Luther's assuming evil is something. Yeah. Whereas the patristic idea of evil is that it's nothing. A Particularly it's a Augustine's view of evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's the privation of the good. It yeah. is the absence of it's any substance. There, there's no substance to evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm trying to think through right now, which is I believe there is a personified evil, Satan. I yeah. believe that. And yet I believe he, he has no... His power, I guess it would be similar, but by saying his power is only derivative, mm-hmm. and yet the only power he has is to suck into nothingness. Darkness is not the absence of light, or darkness is not the opposite of light, it's the it's absence. absence of light. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the old patristic metaphor, mm-hmm. right? So, As a thought experiment, could you work out a way in which Luther's view 
would still make sense in that, though? I think so, yeah. I, I, I don't want to talk it through and take class time, but I, I might be, it's a good idea for paper, which I won't have to write. But you, you're going to anyway, because yeah. it's been, you're being drawn to it, not that you're going to do anything instrumental. Not under compulsion. Of necessity. You're going to you're gonna, you're gonna spontaneously obey that I would love for you to write a With paper. scrupulous intent. <laughs> yeah. I'm just writing so carefully. I mean, I, if you if one read the third without really uh, pondering the sovereignty of God, uh, you you could get the impression, the Manichaean impression, that God and Satan are two equal and opposite warriors. Okay, because it sounds like that. It's like you could either be written by God or Satan, and watch out because they're fighting over you and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you need a very strong view of God's foreknowledge, predestination, yeah. all that stuff, totally. for that not to be the case. Yeah. You know. Precisely. And and we'll that will be something we'll come back to again when we talk about the hiddenness of God um, and precisely how God's foreknowledge of all things is a comfort to us. Yeah. But how do we let it be a comfort? Like that's that's sort of yeah. the question we'll have to return to. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at page seventy eight um, just as an example of Luther and when he talks about um, the need to know this doctrine. You need to know that God foreknows and causes all things. Um, because he says if you don't know this, um, you will get into some real trouble. Uh, he says, indeed, let me tell you, this is the hinge on which our discussion turns, the crucial issue between us. Our aim is simply to investigate what ability free will has and what respect it is the subject of a divine action and how it stands related to the grace of God. If we know nothing of these things, we shall know nothing whatsoever of Christianity and shall be in worse case than any people on earth. He who dissents from that statement should acknowledge that he is no Christian, and he who ridicules or derides it should realize that he is the Christian's chief foe. Okay, a little overstatement. <laughs> well, here's how he goes on, though. He says, For if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me. If I am ignorant of God's work and power, I am ignorant of God himself. If I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve him, for I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to him. Self-knowledge and the knowledge and glory of God are bound together. Chapter one of the Institutes, baby. It's coming. Yeah. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of similarity there. Um, we'll get down to Calvin just was When we come to the hiddenness of God though, we will find the distinction, I think, um, in some ways. Um, for as we, as you saw at the end of this quote, for Luther this is a real question of um, if we have a high anthropology, we will have a low soteriology, and we will have a low Christology. If there's something in me that is not fully bound and, and um, under necessity to do evil, um, there is something in me that Christ did not need to come save. Um, but if we have a low anthropology, that is the only thing that will allow us to have a high soteriology and a high Christology such that we can praise God as the one who has saved all of us. 
a lot of modern evangelical thought that bucks against that. Mm -hmm. Totally. Because they want to, like, in this whole creation care movement and stuff, they want to highlight, despite the unregenerate, there's so much dignity in the Imago Dei, in the Mm -hmm. human being. Like, so, I mean, online, I'll tweet something like, high anthropology equals low Christology. And someone goes, no, Imago Dei. High anthropology, high Christology. I still believe like there's lots of awesome stuff. And maybe it's just category misplacement and the fact that in a tweet you can't explain yourself. That is a danger. There's something to that. There's the, the, the dignity stuff afoot right now mm-hmm. and the kind of, kind of triumphal reclaim kingdom city stuff is all tied to like our our can do because of Imago Dei and partnership between Christians and non-Christians, which is a beautiful thing, but largely tied to this theology of a very positive view of humanity. Yeah, that, that goes back to what I really appreciated the first day, which was essence versus nature. Luther has a high view of human essence, a low view of human nature, uh, because of the fall. Right? That was in, that was in, uh, against the Scholastics, I think. Mm. And, uh, that's where you have to have a high view of creation and a high view of the fall. Um, so I don't necessarily think low anthropology solves everything. I think there's a lot more nuance involved because people do have some capacity for some good. It's damnable good works, but some capacity for some visible, earthly, temporal, whatever. Kingdoms. Yeah, what yeah, does it it's, matter? It's, 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 that some good and some capacity is benevolent pagan and it doesn't do anything. No. In the ultimate sense. But, yeah. but I think you're right. I think that there's creep in that conversation. Just like there's creep on the Lutheran side. Well, there's um, tons of creep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what you're going to say, but I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean. Yeah. To just like divorce yourself from a faith and works initiative. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, like the creep on the Lutheran side was the bastardization of it by the Nazis, right? Well, we're so based that you're not even human, you know? Um, that's not true Lutheran theology either. We're still so low, so low that we have a really high view of the vault or something. I don't know, but it's not Lutheran theology. It's nowhere close. But what I'm saying is if they capitalized on that one idea of the National Lutheran Church, Nazism is has its roots nowhere close to Lutheranism, right? So I'm not conflating. Uh, I'm not, saying. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> but they they did capitalize on one kind of creep of Lutheranism. Yep, it's good. I think it was John Webster who was giving a lecture on I think it was on anthropology, and someone in the crowd asked him, "Why haven't you spoken about the Imago Dei?" And he was just like, "Ah." I don't really. I like to talk about the Imago Dei about as much as it's talked about in Scripture. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. okay. Oh snap! Uh, <laughs> it's just. It's not there. It's not there. You know, you get it in Genesis, and you get it in Colossians, Colossians. and there it's just that Jesus Christ is the, the image, image of God. You get it. There's a there's debate about it. Well, the first Adam and the second Adam. No, no, no. Let's yeah. talk about those. Colossians 3.10, we're being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. And then I think it's debatable. So we're, so we're not. We're so as the images, we are already in need. Like we're, restoration. We're, we're, we're broken images. Yeah. And I think Jesus makes allusion to it in, uh, in his debate with the Rodians. Mm. Um, whose who's, who's image is this on the coin? Whose image is this? Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a region. 
That's the swing. No, man. Because no. then he says, that which belongs to God, give to God. That which belongs to Caesar, give to Caesar. As well, what belongs to God? His image. Yeah. You Jesus could say, you are my coin. Yeah. Sucker. It's subversive. He's subverted. I think. I think. I think. I think. That's, that's, that's interesting. I've never, I've never heard that, oh, heard that line before. Yeah. No, that sounds like a like that sounds like a more reformed. Oh yeah! It was the roof. You know what? We're gonna come down into styrofoam. That's what I want. Here's what Doctor Gage says. He's, he takes that image of the coin and he he extrapolates. I don't know how he does it, but he did it, and he says. Uh, uh, John the Baptist was beheaded, was put on the plate, his head was on the plate. Okay. And then he said, bring me a coin. And it always reminded the Pharisees that this is the sin that you committed against John the Baptist, and this is the sin of man. You've always killed his prophets. Yeah. And and, and I didn't say it like he said it, but that was the that was the connection. All right. All right. All right. I took us far afield. My apologies. But I don't disagree in principle. Yeah. Luther yeah. talks about the Imago because there's way more talk about the marring of the Imago Day than there is yeah, the, 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 the essence of it. And God is a good creator, and he looks on creation and says it's good. Um, he doesn't create evil. He shapes us as we are already sort of warped wood. But... Um, um, yeah, there's there's plenty of there's plenty of room to talk about the goodness of creation, especially in um, when you move into the orders of creation and how God works in the world. Um, so yeah, there there's there's plenty of room for the other side, but it just doesn't overpower this or, or negate this or anything. Um, I want to read one final piece and then we'll we'll take a break. Um, it's just a reminder of why for Luther this hardcore view of, of necessity is so important. And this will lead us into, I think, the discussion of the hidden and revealed God. So in the middle of page 84, um, really talking at, looking at the first part, it says, when he makes promises, you ought to, to be out of doubt that he knows and can and will perform what he promises into the middle. If then we are taught and believe that we ought to be ignorant of the necessary foreknowledge of God and the necessity of events, Christian faith is utterly destroyed and the promises of God and the whole gospel fall to the ground completely. For the Christian's chief and only comfort in every adversity lies in knowing that God does not lie, but brings all things to pass immutably, and that his will cannot be resisted, altered, or impeded. This is what Cranmer did in, his, in one of his homilies mm. when he talked about uh, the comfort of predestination. Mm. The comfort of it. Yeah. It's a very comforting doctrine. As, we, as we've talked about this first piece on God's foreknowledge and this understanding of the distinction between necessity and compulsion and how those two things relate to the will, um, are there any... Well, okay, we yeah, clarify questions. that one more time. The necessity versus the compulsion. Run that again. I want to hear that again. Right. Um, it's this understanding that for Luther... God foreknows all things, and therefore he all things necessarily happen as he knows them. So he causes all things to happen necessarily. But insofar as that affects us, insofar as he causes all things in us, it happens necessarily, but we are not 
forced to do something against our will. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.